you have a Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have one, if you'd raise your hand, uh, the ushers are going to find you if you just keep it up, and they will give you one. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Keep it up. If you get a Bible that we are handing you, I think it's page 628. Page 628 in those uh, paperbacks that we're handing out. If you're joining us for uh, the very first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, We have been going through, you caught us right in the middle of a Building a Stronger Church series, which is in essence kind of the vision conversation about Gilbert. And, and let me just back up a little bit, give you some context. Uh, if you're new for the first time here, um, Redemption Church is a multi-congregational church that has a desire to plant churches that are gospel-centered and outward-focused throughout the state of Arizona. And there are six congregations meeting this morning around the state. There is one in Tempe and one in uh, Gateway, one in Arcadia. Here in Gilbert, there's one in West Mesa and then one in Flagstaff and more to come. And so there's a vision that's just really, really big that we're going to give our lives to to see what God would do. But there is a, a kind of a a burden, responsibility that I feel, and I think all the lead pastors of the congregations feel, and that is that, re- that uh, redemption vision is only as good as each church is strong. And so we really have decided to kind of put down in writing what we think we want to give our lives to here at Redemption Gilbert for the next foreseeable years to come. And so we've called them the essential elements. You've caught us in week three. The first two weeks, as Paul mentioned, the first week was on prayer. And, and let me just do a second commercial for prayer. In my mind, everything connected to what we're asking God to do in us in a church is directly connected to our desire to pray for these things. And... Uh, We aren't cool enough, we're not smart enough, we're not sharp enough, and we're not rich enough to do things apart from God. And so we need to pray for those. Um, I would love for you to join me on Wednesday night. We had uh, almost 200 people praying for you and praying for the mission of of what God's called us to. If you could rearrange your calendar just to test God, and there's multiple times in the scriptures where God says, try me, just try me. And maybe maybe you are just too pooped and you can't get yourself there on Wednesday, try him. Try him and see what he does to your heart and what he does to uh, the things we pray about. Experience that with us. I'd love for us to fill the conference center with prayers, uh, banging on the door, asking God to move. So I'm inviting you. Um, Last week, we talked about the word of God, and we made a commitment to each other and uh, to God, a kind of a covenant that we would stay put in the word. The word is the source of God's revelation of grace to us and hope in us. And so we're kind of staying there today, which is, I find it very ironic if you're here for the first time, today is a conversation about generosity. So if you're one of those people who go, all they ever talk about is money, well, <laughs> I've never talked about money in my life, and you just met me the first time, and so that's what we're talking about. In the, in the, in the, and I say this honestly, in the months that I've been reading, praying, studying for this message, um, I've had lots of people, pastors and friends, send me articles. Hey, you should try this, you say that. So on Thursday when I was kind of funneling this all down into one particular talk, my floor in my office was covered and littered with papers of people who said stuff. And so this, this I want to read to you is, is one of the things someone said. It, it, was, it was funny and helpful. There was a, a boy, a boy who wanted $100 really, really bad. And uh, he prayed for a couple of weeks and thought it would be better than to re- write a letter to God as opposed to just pray because after all, the money wasn't showing up. And so he wrote a letter and signed it, you know, Lord USA. 
Well, the, the postmaster didn't know what to do with it, so he sent it on to the president. The president saw it and thought it was cute and kind of heartwarming and everything, so he instructed his secretary to then send $5, because after all, $5 is a lot of money to a little boy, and the boy got the money, and he wrote a thank you letter back to the Lord. So this is what he, he says. Um, Dear Lord, thank you very much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you sent it through Washington, D.C., and as usual, those jerks deducted $95. <laughs> funny what the scriptures talk a lot about money our culture in America is addicted to money addicted to materialism and having things and so I want to make sure that I put this disclaimer up front when we talk about generosity there is so much more to generous hearts in Christ than just money Right? It's about our lives too. And in two weeks, we're going to get to that when we talk about serving the body. But for our discussion this morning, we are talking about money. Generous with the things that God owns that he gives to us to stewards. So our possessions and our money. And I, uh, and I have to tell you this. I, I went to a party on Friday night and, and ran into somebody and said, Hey, you need to know that people are praying for you on this. Because I think I, they've sensed my, my nervousness a little bit, anxiousness with this one. Um, there is awkwardness whenever you talk about money. So I just want to say that so that you can at least go, well, at least it's awkward and that's how I feel and that's how he feels. And, and I also wrote down some reasons why it's awkward. Uh, and by the way, it's, it's funny to me, when it comes to these essential elements that we've given you, man, you could hear the amens. Like even if you don't say it, I can see it in your face like prayer. Oh, absolutely. God's word, amen, brother. Preach it. You get to money and I can like smell the brake dust. Like... <laughs> So I, that's how come I'm feeling a little bit like, uh, not nervous, this is the word of God, but, but anxious for us. Because the word of God comes into places we don't let him come sometimes. And money's one of them. And so why? Sometimes it's because of perception. Because of that statement I made earlier, all they ever do is talk about money. Some people have that perception about the church that they're just always wrenching you to get more out of you. And to be honest with you, I don't remember the last time we did any message on giving or generosity or, or money. Um, some of you have been burned in the past. You've been at a ministry or at a church and you've given money and had them misuse it or use you or not do it for the right reasons. And so you go, I don't know, it's a perception issue. Sometimes, uh, and maybe you're here today and, and this is your category of awkwardness, they're the excuses. After all, look at the economy. I don't have a retirement or whatever retirement I had has shrunk so much so that, God, you understand, don't you? You understand that I replenished that and fixed my retirement so that I can feel good about that? Or you, God, you understand if I now divert all these funds that I used to give to you to manage my lifestyle of which I determined that. And God, you get that, don't you? And so we think we're the exception to the rule. And by the way, isn't money my business and nobody else's business? I mean, it's, it's the one place in the Christian's life that's a signpost that says no trespassing. Don't go there. And, uh, and so there's some awkwardness with that. After all, our bills and our responsibilities may have not decreased. Maybe they've stayed level or maybe they've gotten worse. And so this is not a good time for me, <laughs> really. So, so we make excuses. Sometimes, sometimes it's because of judgment. This is a growing experience when it comes to the church and its conversations about money. And that is, you know, and, and I'm trusting people who write on this stuff. They have done some surveys and tested this thing that boomer, post-boomer, is um, people who do not think the church is a noble thing to give to anymore. 
So there's judgments going on. Even, even now, I, I, if we talk about money, and you might be one of them, and I don't know why you f- might feel this way, but not that they're not legitimate or whatever, but they waste money. The church wastes money, and I give the real needs and real places and real hurts, and, and so I have a better understanding or discernment about what to give to than they do because, after all, they're just paying for vacations and salaries and stuff, and that isn't noble. That isn't kingdom-minded. Um, they already have enough. You look around and go, well, they got the microphone and they got the lights and everything else, but this child needs food, and so you, you, there's a judgmentalness to it. Um, there's also this idea uh, about, and I struggle with this awkwardness too, we have two intersecting things that we're trying to accomplish in our building or growing a stronger church. One is these six essential elements that are the ongoing expression of grace received in us, one of which is generosity that just goes on all the time, and the other thing that we believe that God has called us to, and that is to put up a building, and some of you would say, see, this thing's, this, the only reason they're talking about generosity is to get a building built. And that would not be true. But I understand that sometimes there's those judgments. Um, so, sometimes it's misinformation. Like money is a problem, a discussion for you because, one, you've been taught poorly. You've been in a place that, that has misinformed you about what the Bible says about money. And so it feels oppressive or it feels too controlling or, or maybe you've never been taught at all. And so there isn't enough information to know how to feel about it other than just awkward so just saving those out, out loud in front of us, I assume that in this room and in the conference center today, some of us are going to be feeling a little weird because most of what we do is work for, gain, save, and spend my money. And the scriptures has a lot to say about my money. And so um, as Jesus said, powerfully said in Matthew 6, greatest sermon ever preached, Um, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, That one phrase confronts me. Um, In other words, wherever you invest your money, there's your passions. There's your heartbeat. There's your loves and affections, right? And the Holy Spirit could just take that phrase and deal with us for a while, but we have many more things to say. So um, my question I want to start with today is, where's your heart today? If it's true that your money goes where your heart is, where's your heart today? Do you see? So it's a worthwhile question to ask. Um, so when this subject comes up, some of you, and I'm sensitive to this, some of you will feel nervous, and some of you will feel guilt, and some of you will feel offense, and some of you will feel um, a sense of freedom because of however you're responding to this topic of money and possessions. But I want to say this as definitively as I can. You need to listen very carefully, church. There is no clear window into the heart of man and his belief in the gospel than what we do with money. It's the thing you can't hide behind. Like you can put up a good front and look like a servant and maybe not have a servant's heart, but nobody would know, right? And you could put up a good front and and make all these confessions, but in your heart you're struggling with doubts and, and unbelief. But everybody knows what you do with your money. You drive your money, you live in your money. You vacation in your money, you do whatever you want with your money. Everyone knows. Nothing's clearer to your devotions and your need tos and your Jesus plus issues than what we do with our money. And so Jesus talked about money. Some say, um, and I think it's true, I think Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. The only one subject that he talked about more than money and and generosity is, is the kingdom of God. So in Jesus' mind, even in his instructions, uh, this topic isn't marginal, it's huge. 
And, and so we've got to deal with it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church, in fact, it's one of the very first passages I ever memorized as a kid in, in uh, Romans chapter 12. I memorized it in the King James. That says a little bit about my age. So I haven't rememorized it, but this is how it goes. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Right? And do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You can't get past live a sacrificial life in Romans 12.1. You can't get through the whole section of give your life a living sacrifice and not know that somehow this also applies to our money, right? The Crusaders, um, 12, 1300, something like that. It was said of them, and this was true, that, that when they were giving their lives to Christ and getting baptized, many of them would be baptized with their sabers out of the water because they were saying, I, I want you to have my heart, but you're not going to have my vengeance. You're not going to have my anger. You're not going to have my killing, right? Well, let's just transfer it to an American version. We get baptized with our wallets out of the water. Like, God, you can have everything, but not that. Not my security, not my provision, not my, not my fear. You can't have that stuff. And so I, I give you everything but... If that rings true, then the Holy Spirit's going to deal with us today. So let me ask you a question as we get started. Um, and I want to use a parable, uh, which is a spiritual story to illustrate a spiritual truth, and a true story, both of which Jesus uh, told us and experienced. One is the story of the rich young ruler, and, and maybe you know this story. The rich young ruler is a guy who came up to Jesus. He probably looked the part, acted the part, and he said, what good thing must I do to in- inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of went through a short little series of, you know, Ten Commandment kind of things. And his response was, I did that. I've done all that. And I've done it pretty well. Well, Jesus being God also knew this man's heart and his Jesus plus issues. And he said, okay, I've got one last one for you. Take all of your things, all of your possessions, sell them all, give them to the poor, right? And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And, and, And maybe you've read the story Well, the rich young ruler just put his head down and walked away. The other one is a parable, and it was the story that Jesus told talking about the value of the kingdom. And he said there was a man walking through a field, and he stumbled upon a treasure. And it wasn't his field, so he covered the treasure and went away, and he sold everything that he had so he could buy the field. Now, here's the question. Why would one of them give everything and the other wouldn't? Easy. Because one perceived the value in the treasure. It's not complicated. The rich young ruler looked at his life and looked at his possessions and looked at how he lived and looked how he felt about himself and saw his religion and thought, you know, I've got so much. Could I add you to my collection? Because I would love to have everything. And everyone likes you and you're a miracle worker and people are following you. Can I add you to my collection of things? And Jesus says, no, because it's me or nothing. You've got to have all of me and leave all of it behind. You let go of the grip of your life and you can have me. And he said, well, that's too much. Jesus, I don't want you then, right? The guy who finds the treasure in the field says, oh, it's worth it all. I'll give up everything to have the treasure. And the treasure is Jesus, church. So here's the question. In your life, how great is the treasure of Christ? Are you trying to answer? Because I'm leaving that blank spot there for you. In your soul, how great? Really, don't lie, because God already knows. Are you saying, ultimately, God, he's the only treasure I want, he's everything I need? 
Well, then we're going to have a discussion now about how that looks in our life. Or maybe you answered it just the opposite. You said, no, I'm here because somebody invited me. I'm feeling a little weird about this discussion about money, by the way. But that's truly the question we have to answer. When we're all done today, we're going to be laying on that answer. How great is the treasure of Christ? Is it demonstrated in how we live? Is it demonstrated in how we give? And how we sacrifice. I'm going to use this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. To, to, it's a story, really. It's just a story about a people, a Macedonian church, um, who understood the treasure of Christ and gave ridiculously because of it. We're going to make some observations about this church, and then we're going to try to find where they got their source of courage and faith. And then we're going to ask questions about our own version and draw some conclusions. So, By the way, um, it's verses 1 through 5. If you'd read it with me, and then we'll uh, pull it apart. Paul says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul is going around the church collecting for this um, relief, he calls it, of the saints. There is some kind of... uh, poverty that's taken on the church clearly, and we're going to unpack that a little bit, that made Paul go on kind of a collection of the churches for the, for the relief effort. And he starts with the example of the Macedonian church. I'm going to make nine observations of this church, and then we'll apply it. Here's the first one. It's in verse uh, one. And it is that, that what's going on here is the work of grace. That's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. You know this already, don't you, that anything good is of God, right? Uh, There isn't any sharing of glory in any of our stories. So in your life, you can have lots of great stuff going on, but you can always trace the source of it to the grace of God. Any good thing is a work of the Spirit in you and through you, right? And so here's what Paul is making an observation about this church. Listen, they're moved, they're changed, they're this people because of the grace of God. And so you can look at redemption, and I can just say honestly, these, these essential elements that we've put in front of you, we've prayed over like crazy. But, but we won't see anything good if God's grace doesn't show up. We're not clever enough. We're not good enough for that. We're never going to be trendy enough to be winsome enough to have any merit in the kingdom of God if God's grace doesn't show up. So whatever is good is of God. Whatever is of God is grace to us, right? All right, here's the second thing in verse 2. Notice the conditions uh, that this Macedonian church where the grace showed up. Look at this, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, that's the condition they were in. In fact, the phrase really means, it's rendered like this, a huge crushing test. Now, I I don't know um, what that is other than this poverty they're in, but clearly it was a crushing test of which the grace of God flourished in. It's convicting, isn't it? It's really convicting when you look at the American church, like we can't handle anything much. We don't like the word test. We prefer not to have tests. We don't want trials. We don't want difficulties. 
and, and we don't see them as gracious acts of God. And yet here we have, we have this Macedonian church who are experiencing a huge crushing test. So you just need to see this. This is really interesting. God's grace came, salvation came, hope and life change came, and not all the wonderful, wonderful, happy, live forever, rich kind of statements that you hear people say on TVN. Trials came. Grace came, trouble came. They're connected sometimes. We learned that in 1 Peter when we studied the suffering church, that God's grace abounds in the midst of it. Um, Here's the third observation in verse 2. Notice what else came, not just not just stress and trials, but joy. Verse two, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. I double out, uh, line, underlined this one in my Bible because this right here is the key to the whole passage. This is really the source of all of their generosity. The source of their radical giving was their joy in God's grace. And so here's joy. The clearest sign of God's grace in a believer is joy in the midst of trouble, Right? Not happiness. You, you know this. Like, like, we prefer happiness. I would. If, if God gave me a vote, I'd pick you know, forever, happy, no problems, no issues. But somehow, in the believer's life, the grace of God that comes in our life superabounds in trouble, and what comes out of our life is joy, as Peter said, inexpressible, inexpressible and full of glory. Like, I don't know how to put words to it. The joy is so amazingly connected to the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not normal. It's certainly not human. It's supernatural joy. And every believer in here who's gone through something in the a, in a midst of an issue has felt the presence and the peace of God. The joy comes there, right? Amen? And so that's what this church is going through. The secret and the key to their generosity is this unconditional joy anchored in the grace of, of Christ. Here's the fourth observation in verse 2. Notice that God's grace didn't remove their poverty. He says, for this severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. That phrase extreme poverty means down to the depth poor. It's, it's, it's Paul's way of describing a poverty that's hard to describe. So poor. So absolutely poor as to have nothing to show for it. That's the condition that this Macedonian church finds the grace of God and then in their joy start to express it, right? So they're, they're really broke down. They, they didn't use it to be insecure and they didn't use it to be hoarding or tight-fisted or fearful. This church acted differently. So we have problems in the midst of this grace. Here's the fifth thing I want you to notice and that is in verse two as well. Um, that this grace didn't take away trouble or pain or the struggle but it gave a joy so big that it overflowed in ridiculous ways. Look at verse two again. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have, this is the phrase, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Overflowed with a wealth of generosity. Um, Those people who take surveys and studies have examined us, however good or bad that is. They've tested the American church and have realized that on the average, Uh, The richer we get, the less we give. Did you hear that? That we use our money to finance lifestyles and not necessary to be generous. Now, you would think, you would think we're the most affluent, wealthiest country the world has ever known. In God, we trust. We have the freedom to worship in every corner of every city of every state in this country. And yet, the more we have, the less we give in percentage. 
in quantity. And so this is, a, this is an issue for us, church. Uh, some of us have more than enough. We have two or three of more than enough. We hoard those things. And so clearly what I'm learning from this passage is um, having money and being extremely wealthy compared to the entire world um, doesn't make us generous. And generosity has nothing to do with having money. We have poorest to the poor, an expression term to describe a people that have so little, we have to make up words to describe them. And us, who are affluent and wealthy to a degree we can't count, and clearly having doesn't make us generous, does it? Don't be afraid to say it. Money isn't the key to be generous. There is something else, something else that's happening in the Macedonian church. Look at the the sixth observation in verse 3. Again, this, this whole demeanor they have is unbelievable, but these, these new believers gave beyond what they could give. That's an absurd statement, but it's true. Verse 3, for they, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They superabounded in giving, even in the midst of their extreme poverty. In other words, they, they were ridiculous givers. They were foolish givers. They took risks, clearly. They gave more than they could give. What do you do with that? Like, I, I read that and I go, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to you about giving more than you can give to match the heart of grace that these people in their joy gave out of. How do you give more than you can? But somehow the Macedonian churches were so freed from fear and free from their own provision and so free from all the things the world would press on them that what came out of them was the Holy Spirit's work of grace to the world around them. And so, so somehow they were able to overgive. I want you to notice another truth in verse 3. They gave of their own free will. You see it at the end of that verse? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. It was their choice. They weren't forced. This wasn't some law. This wasn't some percentage that some uh, rabbi put in front of them and said, if you do this, God will love you more. They did what they wanted to do. And like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God really loves and digs a willful, cheerful giver. And so when we give, the whole desire to go, I want to, I want to, I want to, and I'm happy to, that whole thing has to connect to our giving because that's what God's into, not numbers. So... Here's the eighth observation from this text, and it's in verse four. They gave with passion. And they gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged. I I went on a mission trip. Um, I took about 25 kids in 1996 to Mexico. And we built what would be the equivalent of a tool shed for families there. They didn't have anything, really. And the father had a, a, a tire that he used for a chair. I remember that. And the kids running around the streets and all that kind of stuff. And every one of us have seen pictures like that. Now, I want you to picture your version of poorest of poor. And they would be begging to meet your needs. Begging. 
The passion in their hearts because of the grace they received compelled them. God's grace overflowed in them. The word beg probably means, and I'm reading into this a little bit, probably means that Paul tried to talk them out of it. Hey, wait a minute. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. But they were in their own hearts of faith and grace going, oh, we just want to. We believe God. See a difference? Difference in kind of giving. One last observation. This is going to be, the point's going to be made more in a couple of weeks when we talk about service to the body, but they gave of themselves in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this is what God's grace produced in this Macedonian church. This is what they did. It's an unbelievable, true example story of a demonstration of generosity. So how did it happen? What, what caused it? I've got one main verse in this same passage that is the source of all of this ridiculous, passionate, no thought from himself kind of giving. I want to read verses 7 through 9 and build a case for this. Um, but this is the source. Verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul is writing the church in Corinth who is more wealthy than the church in Macedonia, who is receiving a gift from this poorest of poor church. And Paul says to that church and then to us 2,000 years later, I want you to see what they did and excel even more than they did. Whatever God has done in them through grace is the example to all. Get it? So that's what he says in verse 7. Here's what he goes on to say in verse 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Now hang on to your hats, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, you got to see this church. Jesus is described and is in the scriptures the creator, sustainer of all things. All things were made by him and through him and to him. Jesus is the owner of all things. Haggai says of God, saying of our possessions and our money, the silver's mine and the gold's mine. Let's not get confused of what belongs to who here. This is all God's. God is the author and the sustainer and the giver of life. He is preexistent perfect. He was totally in harmony with the, with the spirit and with the father, all one, not needing anything else, but this God who was fully rich, majestic and holy, came down into our mess and became like one of us. That's the description Paul says that he became poor. And I want you to get your mind around this. I I found this little description um, to help us, but he emptied himself of his riches and he became a man. This is the creator, owner of everything, by the way, the king of glory. He owned everything. But when he came into this world, he was borrowing everything. Unthinkable, right? He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. He had to borrow a boat to cross a little sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city when he was being triumphantly welcomed as the king of kings and lord of lords. He had to borrow a room for Passover because he didn't even have a house in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. The only person who would have the right to everything wound up with nothing, becoming a servant. He came into the world as king of kings and lord of lords, rightful heir of David's throne, as well as God in human flesh, but he had no advantages. He had no privileges in this world. He came as a poor servant. He who was rich 
became poor. Now watch the punchline on this. So that you and I, who are poor, let me describe that for you. We are broken. And we are spiritually bankrupt. The Bible says to those of us, to everyone who doesn't know the gospel, it's foolishness. We can't perceive it. We can't understand it. We can't make sense out of it. We can't love it on our own. We can't have faith on our own. We are so spiritually bankrupt that anything spiritual is undiscernible by human hearts. We are screwed up and broken and dead in our sins. And we're hurting ourselves and hurting other people with no hope for us or the future or anything else. It's as bad as I could possibly describe it. He who is rich became poor so that we who were that poor could become rich. Rich in what? Rich in our pockets. Rich in our own provision. Rich in the gospel. Set us free. He forgives so completely that the term that the writer of, of, of the Psalms describes it as far as the east is from the west. That's how far. Figure that one out. He will remember your sins no more. It's Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Do you believe that, church? Freedom. He saves us and adopts us as sons and daughters and invites us into the throne room and gives us the inheritance of the king. We get blessing, we get joy, we get mercy, we get God. You might should smile somewhere in there, <laughs> maybe. God, in his generous giving nature, gave the most probably most famous passage in all scripture, for God so loved the world that he, yeah. Listen, listen very carefully. For sinners like us to receive the riches of God and not get what we deserve, his wrath means that we take on the generous heart of our father. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is not open for debate. This is not a discussion. This isn't just one thing that will happen someday. The giving nature of God, transforming poor people into rich people, means we take on the heart and character of the Father who gave, right? Of our lives, of our money, of our time, of our hearts, of our prayers. That's what the gospel does to sinners. It changes us from takers and users to blessing and faith and givers. It does. So because of the gospel, we're free. You might think of freedom like how you can use it, but just, just think about this for a second. No longer are you now addicted to fear because of the gospel. No longer are you addicted to control because if you don't control, then it won't work out like you want it and the way you want it is your version of joy and your version of joy is greater than the one that he's described and after all, I can't really trust him with stuff like that. I'd rather manage the pieces, God. The gospel means I don't have to walk that way anymore. It means I don't have to be selfish. I don't have to walk in unbelief. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fight for my provision because God fights for me, right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God cares about where you live? And how you live? Do you think he cares about your food and your clothing? Maybe. You should, because he does. He uses a flower in a field to describe his interest. How much more so will he clothe you? How much more so will he feed you? How much more so will he care for you? So, 
This gospel frees us to be generous just like this church in Macedonia begging, get this, now get this, the kind of freedom we walk in, begging for the privilege to give ridiculously. It's convicting. Well, as unbelievable as it may be, even after experiencing the riches of God, some would say, refresh my memory, why, why should I give again? What's this giving thing for? Where is it source? So if you, if you like lists and commands, you're going to get them now. Why should you give? It's a command. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is instructing the church in Corinth. You need to do it. You need to collect it every week, and you need to give. So I don't want to walk in, com- like, that's the only reason why you do it. Hopefully the grace is driving you, but there is a command. Well, that's why you give. There's another truth to giving, and that is that God promises to bless it. Now, I don't want to overemphasize this, but I don't want to run away from it because it's in the Bible. I'm going to use a small little passage. You don't need to turn there, but you can look it up sometime. Malachi chapter 3 is a discussion between God and his people. And his people have accused God of unfaithfulness. Like, God, we're your people, right? Like, we have your mark. Like, the world knows we belong to you, and it seems like you kind of turned on us. It seems like the things we want, the things we ask for, the things that we prefer, you're not doing, and so we're questioning how interested you are in us anymore, and then God starts this dialogue with the people in Malachi 3, and he, and he says, um, I don't change. It's the first statement he makes to people questioning his faithfulness. He says, I don't change. Listen to what he says. For the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. That's what God says about us. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? See, the people of God thought they were close enough and they're confused by God's comment of come back and they're going, how should we return? And he says this, this is, this is God speaking. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In our t- in, God says, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby, and this is the phrase I want you to get, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The word of God seems to uh, punch us in the face with God's interest in us if we walk in faith. Like, you don't have any idea. You want to walk in fear? Well, go ahead. You want to walk in control? Go ahead. And it won't produce anything more than more of that. You want freedom? You want to walk in grace? Then watch God do his thing, and he'll open up heaven on you. You want to give? You want to know why to give? It's commanded, but there's blessing through it, right? That's what the scriptures say. God says, and I've already told you this, Matthew 6, Jesus said, it uh, says your heart follows your money. So if you want to change how you feel about church and ministry, give to it. And as soon as you give to it, you'll care for it, and you'll pray for it, and you'll own it, and you'll serve it, as opposed to sit at a distance and make judgments about something you'll never do or ever participate in. Give, and your heart will follow. You see? You see? And I, I think there's another aspect of what Jesus is saying there is your devotional heart, your, lo- your love for me and my work goes way up when you give. We've already seen in 2 Corinthians that it, is, it reflects the generous nature of God's gospel, and it's the cure to materialism. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't need any convincing that you should give, but you started down the questions of, well, okay, Tim, now tell me what I'm supposed to give. 
because we're better legalists than we are grace people. And you would prefer me to put a nice, cool number up there and go, just do that, and God will love you more. And I'm not going to do that. Um, So the question is, what do you give? Before I tell you what you should give, let me tell you the types of people that are in this room and in the conference center this morning. There are those people who do this kind of assessing, say there are five types of givers in every church. And let the Holy Spirit just deal with you. (laughs) There are non-givers. People that come every week and just don't participate whatsoever. You're not interested in the kingdom of God. You're not interested in, in, in uh, of giving or meeting needs or, or whatever. You're not interested in all the benefits or pluses that come out of giving, so you're just a non-giver. There are the God-tippers. These are the people that sit in the service and go, well, isn't that service great? What do I have in my pocket? And you go by and go, and you feel better because you tipped God because he was really good to you in that service, right? And then there are the uh, regular givers. These are the consistent people. These are people that have a conviction and an understanding of the word that they should be consistent. And so that's what you bring, a consistency to it. Then there are the proportional givers. These are the people who pick a percentage, like a 10%. These are classic 10% tithers. Now, maybe it's connected to legalism, whatever. Maybe it's connected to some old teaching on, on, on Old Testament um, Hebrew mandates, but they're, they're proportional givers, and they give that. And then there are the extravagant givers. These are the Macedonian-type givers, stupid givers. I don't mean that word as bad as that sounded. I mean ridiculous givers. I got confronted about using the word stupid. But, um, and by the way, if I lay out the types of givers, the greatest percentage starts at the top. The smallage percentage is at the bottom. The greatest number of non-givers, it's unbelievable. And we have the smallest number of extravagant givers. That's just how it works out. So what do I give? I'm going to give you a a thing to think about, and it's not going to just be easy. You ready? Enough that it matters. You need to give enough that it matters. So if your version of giving is just the extra, doesn't affect you, doesn't affect your lifestyle, doesn't affect what you do or what you could do or what you can have, then you aren't giving according to the biblical model of giving. Uh, Erwin Lutzer, who's a pastor at Moody Church in Chicago, said this, those who give much, now think about this, those who give much without sacrifice in the scriptures are reckoned as giving little. It has nothing to do with how much. It has to do with how it affects. So are you giving enough that it matters? It should make a difference in your lifestyle. We're to give enough that there are things we cannot do and cannot have because we're giving towards the work of God. You want to know what to give? Um, the Old Testament started with a 10% tithe. But Jesus and the gospel always, in every category, moved it up. Um, Jesus said in a series of statements in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He says, you've heard it said that a man should not commit adultery, but I tell you that you're judged and condemned in your heart. You've heard it said not to murder or kill, but I tell you if you hate in your heart. You are judged and condemned in your heart. Jesus always established a principle and pushed it up based on the grace of God driving it. Get it? It moves it up. Now, I asked Neil before he left. He's on a cruise. God bless him. Um, And I asked him, I said, Neil, I need to know what we are. Tell tell me what we are percentage-wise. How healthy are we as a church or unhealthy? Neil told me that we are 3.5% givers. Now, that means that 20% of you are doing 80% of the work. But overall, 
Average per capita income were 3.5% givers at, at Redemption Gilbert. Now, you might sit here and go, wait a minute, Tim, you're getting really too close to home now because I believe in grace. I don't believe in law at all, and the tithe has nothing to do with the, with the gospel, so move on. And I'm going to press a little harder here. Uh, Randy Elkhorn made the statement. I love it so much, I just want to read it, let it do its own work. I've heard Christians argue often angrily that tithing is legalism. However, the average American Christian gives 2.5%. Now, even using 10% as a measure, the Israelites were four times, now get this, four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of God. Ouch. So, when we as New Testament believers living in, uh, and when we as New Testament believers living in the far more affluent society than ancient Israel only give a fraction of what given by the poorest Old Testament believers, we surely must reevaluate our concept of grace giving. And when you consider that we have an indwelling spirit of God and they didn't, the contrast becomes even more glaring. Now this is his punchline. If you fear legalism, fine. Give 11 or 12%. (laughs) Do you see his point? Church, The Old Testament believers were buried under law that only brought conviction. It only brought death and destruction. That's all the law was supposed to do. Leads you to Jesus. Leads you to grace. We get grace. We have the scriptures. We have 20-20 hindsight. We know what God has done and what he's provided in the future. We got all that good stuff, and yet we kind of hold back. The scriptures say, live in that freedom. And so we, we use, like the tithe, and say, well, that's not for us. So since God loves a cheerful giver, I'm happy to give nothing. So, let me finish with a so what here. I want you to remember that you're giving to God, not a church. I want to make this really easy for you. If you're one of those sitting in judgment of a church or a building or seats or lighting or salaries or whatever, it's much, 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 much bigger than that. Um, I asked Tyler Johnson, who, who is the lead pastor of Redemption Church, and his team that oversees uh, our CGI, which is our community and global engagement, to give me a perspective, to give us a perspective of the giving nature of us as a church, of which I know you're going to go, well, why didn't you tell us? And that's part of the challenge that we've been wrestling with as a leadership team, knowing how and when to communicate. This is the stuff you need to hear. Um, I want you to know about what we are doing, where the money goes at Redemption. If you're, if you're one of those sitting at, at the side and going, I think I'd rather give to noble causes, well, listen to these. Uh, in 2012, we gave $260,000 to church planning. This includes not just the uh, Redemption churches that were expanding around the state, but it also includes Redemption in uh, San Francisco, a total autonomous church, as well as other churches in Phoenix. Um, when we move into the local global thing, you can make up a word called glocal if you want to. Whatever we do with the gospel outside, um, we gave $525,000 last year. Let, let me just describe some of these things that were done with that money. Uh, the Surge Network, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it is, a, it is a ministry focused on discipleship and leadership development around the state. There are 80-some churches involved being discipled and trained through the Surge Network, of which we support. Um, West Mesa Community Center, job training, English second language, young life meetings, food and clothing distribution, and Bible studies. Mount Nebo Prison Ministry we've supported for years and years and years. I think Chuck Holmes is a, he is the largest distributor of John MacArthur Study Bibles in the world, and we've been supporting that for 
for years and years. Foster care and adoption every night in Arizona on the floors of the Child Protective Services, kids without homes are sleeping. And so we're working on an initiative to raise up foster families and adoptive families for these kids. The money goes there. You heard us at Christmas talk about the Uzbeks and the Somalis and trying to get them a, tra- a tractor for their New Roots program. Well, we're involved in that, in that ministry all the time. This includes resettling families and job training and kids programs. Uh, Gateway Medical Alliance in North Africa providing hospitals, uh, more advanced equipment, starting physical therapy centers and, and worldview training. We're, we're involved in church planning in, in North Africa, media projects to make the gospel known in and throughout North Africa, the Wycliffe Bible translator seeking to produce the scriptures in new languages, also working with, to document um, unknown languages. Uh, the Preemptive Love Coalition, this is providing heart surgeries for children in Iraq who were born under the reign of Saddam Hussein who were affected by the, you know, when he... Uh, he gassed the, the Kurds way back, and so there's kids being born with birth defects, and we're supporting doctors and nurses to go over there and provide heart surgeries for them. The Peace Catalyst International, working to make the gospel of peace known to the Muslims and the, and the Jewish and the Christian uh, communities. So um, that's what we're doing. What will we do next? Just, just so you know, the commitment from the leadership of Redemption is that 10% plus will always go externally from what we do at Redemption. Uh, this year at Redemption, we'll give at least $800,000 of our total budget of 6.7, of which Gilbert contributes 65% of that number to others. Ongoing. So if you're one of those people who walks by or has someone knock on your door and go, well, at least I'm giving to things that I perceive to be in need, you need to know that every dime that you give does stuff around the world you'd never know of and couldn't participate in at that level unless you gave faithfully here at your church. So... Um, let, let me give you the punchline on some of this stuff. In 2011, Redemption Church gave $670,000 to outward-focused ministries. That does not include the salaries of people we pay full-time just to worry about out, outward-focused ministries. Um, uh, last year, we increased that level to $780,000 with an extra, get this, $1 million to support local church. So total number spent the last two years is $2.5 million outside of Redemption. Now, here's what we're praying for. We can't do that unless we're strong, right? Some people question why we would want a building. We want a building because we, we need to be strong because we want to give more. And, and by the way, church, just so you know, I don't want to make you feel bad. That's on 3.5% giving. If we gave according to grace giving, we could triple our efforts in the world around us. So... Gilbert must stay strong so that we can give strong. Let me give you a couple punchlines as we uh, get through uh, today. I'm encouraging you, don't let fear dictate your generosity. Let faith do it. This is a faith issue, right? Don't let whatever circumstances you're in, don't, don't try to create a scenario that puts you in a different category than this Macedonian church. They were up against it, and they begged to give ridiculously. So let... Let faith dictate your generosity. It is a spiritual decision, not a financial one. You need to pray this up. And God is looking for your heart, and he's not looking for donations. He does not have a money problem. Right? Yeah. So what if you're not in the game? What if, and I prayed for this, I prayed for you, I prayed for those of you who don't give and those of you who are giving out of fear and you give what's left over and don't give what God deserves up front. And so I'm... I'm I want to give you some tools to get out of that 
Um, if you're not in the game, I'm asking you to prayerfully consider being a percentage giver. If you're one of those tippers or you give what's left over or you give sporadically or undisciplined, then decide now between you and God, your wife, your family, whatever, I'm going to be a percent. I got to get in the game. I've built a whole life around me using all of his resources for my lifestyle. Now I got to work my way back. So whether it's 1% or 2% or 3%, get in the game. Make a commitment to faithfully give on a regular basis a percentage. You decide what it is. Knowing that the Holy Spirit and God will move this down the field until you're giving crazy like the Macedonian church. And start and commit to a plan. Be a faithful, regular giver. Give to God first. First thing you do. First thing you do is express your belief and faith in God and this gospel. Everything else is, okay, God, how do you want me to use this for my life? So um, I'm gonna connect this to a particular project we got going on and I don't wanna confuse the issue. God in his sovereignty has put us in a position to talk about what we need to be and how we need to grow and how we need to be healthy for the next 10 plus years. We're also in the need of a building and the building is gonna help us become a stronger church to do more of these things outward focused. So we put in your hands today this My Gift Potential. This is an exercise to have you work through what is God's call in your life. Just three little steps, right? Step one is, what could I give towards this building project that is a no-brainer? I don't think about it. There's a number for that. What could I give if I was sacrificial? That's going to take some work and some prayer. And then what could I give if I dreamed? All I want you to do is you and your family is work through this and write down your answers based on what the Holy Spirit tells you. Because on March 3rd, we're going to come together on Commitment Sunday, and we're going to bring our pledges and our offerings to that project, specifically to see the gospel go from us. And, and so I, just in my own life, my wife and I sat down a couple, three months ago and said, honey, what are we going to do? And so we decided to do both. We decided to go into our retirement and take money to give cash right away, and then we're committed every month for the next three years, an extra number, to see this work done. You can do one, you can do both, you can do whatever, you can do crazy giving. But, but part of our walking in obedience, by every door you leave, there's an offering box. It stays there. It's not going anywhere. It's meant to communicate we understand what it is to walk in grace. We understand what it is to be freed and to, to walk in this daily. And so we're not moving those boxes um, they're going to be there when you leave, general giving. And then there's this project that we'd like to do to see God grow our ministry so that we can influence the world for the gospel. Does that make sense? A couple of tools we put in front of you every week. Um, if I could make you read a book on giving, I'd make you read this one. Randy Alcorn's book, The, the Treasure Principle. Amazing book. You can read it in an hour and 20 minutes. It's 100 pages long, big fat print, easy to understand. But it will not leave you the same. And then this book called Money, God, or a Gift by Jamie Munson. It's $5, really inexpensive, great material. You want to add to your understanding of God's perspective on his possessions in your control? Those are them. We need to pray for help, amen? Let's do it together. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us, and I thank you so much that even things like our fears and insecurities about what we have or what we need or whatever are under your sovereign hand. And so, God, this morning, rearrange our affections so that you are always where you belong and deserve to be, first and foremost. God, take our hands and open them up around our, uh, from our money and our possessions. 
God, you take them, you do what you want. I pray, God, that uh, the people here in the conference center this morning would walk in faith, giving ridiculously because the source of that is your grace. Unbelievable to us, we pray. Amen.